All right, everybody. Thank you so much, uh, Ashley, Dennis. Thank you so much for your service. I'm David G. I'm now Colicating, and definitely by the grace and power of the loving God that revealed Himself to me through the twelve steps as outlined in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. As Ashley said, I've, I've been sober since August eighth, nineteen ninety four, and with a sobriety date in another fellowship of October first, two thousand and nineteen. Really grateful to be here. We've been traveling through the doctor's opinion, the forwards and the doctor's opinion over the last few weeks. We've landed on uh, Roman numeral 28 in the big book, uh, the doctor's opinion. We talked about this a little bit last week, and, um, you know, I just wanted to come back to it because really it's such an important thing for me to realize that this particular part is talking about when I'm sober, this is before I take a drink, this is before I act out sexually, this is before I overeat, whatever my issue is, this is what goes on inside of me prior to doing that. Because as we've talked about over the past few weeks, obviously, if the problem is alcohol, just don't drink it and there shouldn't be any more problem. If the problem is sex, acting out, don't do it. You shouldn't have any more problems. But for people like us, it seems that every time we stop doing that, something else shows up very irritable, restless, and discontent. And it drives us to the point of picking that up again. So the doctor's telling us that once we put it inside of our body, that sets up a phenomenon of craving that demands more of the same. And he's been telling us over and over and over through this chapter. So I thought we would start again this week on Roman numeral 28, bottom paragraph, in the doctor's opinion, XXVIII, where it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Now, I can remember the first time that I was reading this with a sponsor in 1995. And we stopped there for a second, and I took a look at that, and I said, I, I don't believe that's true. And he said, why? Why would you not believe that? And I said, because I love the taste of bourbon whiskey. I love the taste of alcohol. I love the taste of many, many other kinds of alcohol. I don't believe that I only drink for the effect. And he said, well, I noticed you're drinking a glass of tea there today. And I said, yeah. He said, any chance you'll drink about 48 cups of that before we get up from here this afternoon? And I said, well, no, of course not. And he said, no, because the effect would not be what you was looking for. And you know, that landed with me that day for some reason. I drank because I like the effect produced by alcohol. When I drink lust, I like the effect it gives me. I like, I just like it. Now, this is while we're sober. The sensation is so elusive that while they admitted his interest, they, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the truth from the false. There was a lot of people that knew the truth about my drinking, about my acting out a long time before I did. This was pointed out to me by many people, but I was the last one to know. I can remember my sponsor, Charlie, of Joe and Charlie, telling me early on that his mother came to him and told him, you'll never be able to drink successfully. Everyone in your family on your father's side has been alcoholic. And Charlie told me, he looked at her and told her, said, well, I'm only half part of me. The other half didn't drink like that. And so he justified that by thinking that he would be able to handle that. And as experience has shown all of us, that's not the truth. To them, their alcoholic life seems to be the only normal one. It seems to be. 
doesn't mean it is, but it seems to be the only normal one. Now, if I go to jail for drinking and driving, that's pretty abnormal, fighting, whatever I may do. But if I do that over and over and over, it becomes a normal part of life for me. The same way with acting out at first, there's that that uneasiness on the inside of me that nothing can seem to scorch. But after a little while, I settle into that and that becomes truth for me. And that's what happened for so long. So here's what it's talking about while we are sober. This is what goes on inside of me prior to me drinking, acting out, whatever the issue may be. They are restless. My sponsor had me to write the word physical above that. We're irritable. He had me to write the word mental above that. And we're discontented. He had me to write the word spiritual above that. That's going to set the tone for the entire rest of the book moving forward. Now, this is while I'm sober. So when I look at that, you know, I have to ask myself, how am I restless? What does my experience show with that? Well, one of the symptoms of it is feeling the need to constantly be on the move. I'm never okay just sitting still. In fact, I still have some of that today at times. I need to get up and move around and be going somewhere and doing something. And someone needs to be ready to go when I'm ready to go. And I'm just not quite all the way settled down. Another symptom of it is being unable to calm my mind. It would just constantly race all the time. Or it would be a combination of both. It also caused hyperactivity, agitation, insomnia. The list goes on and on and on. Very, very restless. What about irritable? Oh, that's a big one for me. Agitation. There would be times that I would get agitated for no reason. Maybe the kids were talking too loud. Maybe somebody was flying up and down the road on a Harley Davidson motorcycle. Oh, I would just become furious with that. Frustration. I mean, nobody could ever do anything right. Annoyance. It just annoyed me. The phone ring. People call. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for that. Just annoyed all the time. Confusion, uh, constantly in confusion, thinking it was them, not me. Difficulty concentrating, that's another symptom of irritability. I mean, this is all the stuff that's going on inside of me prior to acting out or taking a drink. What about discontent? Never feeling satisfied or desire for something else. I always needed something else, no matter what I had. I, I had a job where I was making well more than six figures a year. It wasn't enough. I needed to steal from them people. I needed to take from them. I needed this. I needed that. I needed more all the time. Lack of satisfaction of possessions, status, situation, being disconnected from power is all it amounts to. These are all the things going on inside of me. And I never realized that by just reading those three little words. We were restless, irritable, and discontent until I really start applying my experience with what this book is asking or what it's saying. Then I, I begin to get an idea why it is that I have to have something to calm that down, no matter what that may be in my addiction, whether it be food, whether it be lust, whether it be drugs, alcohol, control, whatever that may be. So he says we're restless, irritable, discontent, unless, unless we can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes by taking a few drinks or acting out, whatever it may be. But here's the problem that I have with that. Drinks which I see others taken with impunity. Now, I've had a a few ex-wives, and there was one of them in particular that she could drink three beers out of a six-pack with me, and it may be 
six months before she drank any more beer. It'd be six months before I stopped drinking after I start that. Why? Why can she do that and not me? This next sentence says, after we succumb to the desire again, in other words, after we go ahead and give in, I mean, all this restless irritableness and discontentment's going on. I can't handle life anymore. I'm about to flip again, and I succumb to the desire again. I go ahead and pick up a drink. I go ahead and call up an escort. I do whatever it is I do. I succumb to the desire again, as so many do. But look what he says. That's when that phenomenon of craving develops. See, it doesn't occur before. It occurs after. And that's where I was mistaken. I always thought that after a period of sobriety, I was craving lust or a drink or a drug or, or whatever it may be. This is what I'm craving. Oh, my God, I need it so bad. But it's not. See, I was obsessing over those things. I was not craving. And the doctor says it very clearly right there. After we succumb to the desire again, go ahead and put it in our body. Because so many do then that phenomenon of craving develops. We pass through the well-known stages of a spree. Can anybody identify with that? Emergent remorseful. How about that? I already know there's a lot of us sex addicts on here today. Many of us has emerged remorseful after things like that. And what he says here with a firm resolution not to drink, act out, whatever it may be again. And I mean a firm resolution. I can remember one time swearing on a holy Bible that I would never do it again and meant it with all my heart. And within a week, I was back at it again and feeling like the lowest scum on earth. I can't even keep a promise to God, my mind was telling me. I didn't realize I didn't have any power not to do this again. I just didn't understand that at the time. He says this is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, which I'm going to learn later on to be a spiritual experience, there's going to be very little hope of my recovery. I'm not going to make it unless I have this entire psychic change, just not partly. But he said this is repeated over and over. And I would drink until I just could not drink anymore. And then I would stop until I just could not stay stopped anymore. And I'd pick up a drink. And this went on endlessly over and over and over and over. I'd act out till I was so sick I couldn't act out anymore. And then I would stop until I just could not stay stopped anymore. And my mind would lead me back into that insanity one more time. And every time I picked it up, no matter what it was, it always had the same result. It set up a phenomenon of craving that demanded more of the same once I ingested it in my body. And so that's what he's telling me here. Without this, I'm doomed. And when we got to this part of the book, I can remember feeling pretty hopeless. I mean, I come to understand in step one, I'm powerless for two reasons, not one. One, when I put it in my body, I cannot stop. And once I take it out of my body, I can't stay stopped. My mind won't let me. I'm trapped both ways. I have a body that cannot process alcohol, drugs, lust, any of this stuff. And I got a mind that cannot process reality. So I've got those two running together and I don't have any defense against that. And I'm over and over and over and over and over. I'm relapsing. I can't stop. But the good news is, and he says here, on the other hand, and as strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, like the ex-wife, the mom, different people in my employment, things, people that did not understand. Once the psychic change has occurred, the very same person, David, who seemed doomed, doesn't really say that it was, it just said it, and it very well seemed that way, who had so many problems that he ever 
he despaired of ever solving them. Key word for me right here, suddenly. And any time that spiritual experience has occurred, it has always for me been suddenly. I mean, it's just like life changing. Suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, food, sex, drugs, whatever it may be, easily. But there is a condition, and he's going to talk about it right here. The only effort necessary, and there is an effort necessary here, being that required to follow a few simple rules, which we know to be the rest of the steps as outlined in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous through the process of the Big Book Step Study. Many of us have went through this and recovered from all these things now. No longer are we fighting our mind with this anymore. And we're not craving it anymore because we're not putting it into our bodies anymore. Suddenly, finds himself easily able. What a promise. What a promise. So the doctor says, men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. Ever have a sponsee do that with you? My God, I have. And it's horrible to watch a man in that kind of agony. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. But faced with this problem, if the doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that's in him, it's often not enough. Why? Why would it not be enough? Because we are beyond human aid. There's no human power that can relieve us from this. I have to have you. There's no doubt. But at the end of the day, <laughs> this power, I'm going to have to have this experience in order for me to recover. And he says that right here, one that feels something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. So the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable. We physicians, and remember he started out the chapter back over there on the very first page. He said, I have specialized in alcoholism for many years. So this was his opinion at the time. And we know, and we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, that in 1972, this became a medical fact. So he no longer is talking, I, he is saying now, we. And so he says it here, you know, we physicians must admit that we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many perhaps do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach, and that was definitely me. The psychological approach was never one that really held weight with me at all. But I love this right here. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. My family told me for years and years, David, this, it's in your mind. If you make up your mind to stop, you can stop. We did it. You can do it. And I tried and tried and tried that over and over, and I could just never stop. Well, my mind told me I'm a failure. I wasn't good enough, yada, yada, whatever. But the doctor makes it very clear to me right here. I do not hold with those that believe alcoholism is entirely, keyword, a problem of mental control because it's bodily as well. We begin to see that now. I've had men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal, which should be set on a certain date favorable to them. They took a drink, keyword there being a, they took a drink, not a bunch of drinks, not a day or two worth of drinking. They took a drink, a day or so prior to date. Then the phenomenon of craving at once become paramount to all other interests, not before, after he put it in the body. 
there was a young man that was a youth pastor at a church. Good guy. Very good guy. Everybody liked him, loved him. He's just a good man. He had a young man in his congregation. The only person that he had in his life was his mother. That's all he had in his life. Nobody, no grandmother, no anybody. And this youth pastor was very close with him. Well, this young man's mother died. And oh, he was just heartbroken. He had nobody. So he turned to the youth pastor and he said, you know, would you be at the service with me? Would you help me? Because I have nobody there. And he said, well, yeah, absolutely. Of course I would. What people didn't know is that the youth pastor was a practicing lustaholic, sex addict. And so that evening he went home and to relax for the day, like so many of us have. He turned on the computer and began to watch things that he shouldn't be watching. And it has been my experience that any time I take action like that outside of the thought that's going on in my mind, I trigger something within me that wants more and more and more of that. The doctor calls that a craving in this chapter. Well, this young man went into what's known as a, a blackout with lust. Now, I don't know if anybody's ever experienced that on here. I know a few have. We can absolutely be driving down the road and a massage parlor will catch our attention and we will absolutely go to that without even thinking about anything else. Or I can click on the computer and I may be lost in pornography for hours, hours, and come to and think, oh my God, you know, I've wasted a whole day here. I don't know if anybody else has had that experience, but I definitely have. So what happened was that youth pastor missed that event and how remorseful and shameful he must have been over that. It's terrible. So he took a lust drink is what happened to him. He acted on a thought. And that became a reality. And then that phenomenon of craving, as it says there at the bottom of the page, at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men and that man, it wasn't drinking or he wasn't acting out to escape. He was drinking or we are acting out or overeating or whatever it may be to overcome a craving, keywords beyond our mental control. The mind has nothing to say about that anymore. It will lead me to that every time. But once it's in the body, there's a craving that comes over me that I absolutely cannot overcome mentally. I've tried over and over and over. In my experience, it never works. Once in a while, if I have a thought like that and I'm in a bad place and I call up another member, I turn to God. I go to the 10th step as outlined in the big book. There's things that I can do to offset that. But in my experience, anytime I take action outside of that thought, click on the computer, drive toward a massage parlor, message people, do this, do that, I trigger a phenomenon of craving within me that demands more of the same. He says there's many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving, which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than to continue to fight. And anytime I see those words, supreme sacrifice in this book, I know what that means now. I used to not know that. But that means to kill ourselves rather than to continue to fight for life or recovery or sobriety or whatever it may be. He says that happens out of this phenomenon. That phenomenon of craving is very deadly. I know it to be the fact. I was sponsoring a young man one time and he lived across town from me here and he had four years and he had relapsed and he went back out and he come back and got a year and he went out and came back and got a year. And this went on for a while. And one morning, some years later, his mother called me just heartbroken. He had hung himself in the closet that night. 
And anytime I read this, I always think about that guy. What I mean, he had a business. He, he had a restaurant. He'd done very well as an owner. I mean, but it took him out. It just took him out. Another time, there's some, about three blocks up the road from me here. There was a guy who had relapsed. He was back on alcohol and drugs, and he was acting out pretty bad. And he was in a bad way, and we was going by to check on him pretty much every day. And I went there one morning. It's really quiet that morning. It really it, it concerned me right away. And I went in, and he had shot himself point blank in the head with a thirty-eight pistol sitting in his recliner that night. Now, the remains was all over the place and the walls, and you could imagine. I've seen a lot of men make the supreme sacrifice rather than to continue to fight. We don't have to do that. We don't. We've got a way out here. We do. So the doctor's going to give us about five different types of alcoholics to take a look at. And I guarantee you, if we look at this real close, we're probably going to find ourselves in one, two, maybe even all of them. He says the classification of alcoholics seem most difficult and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. Type number one. There are, of course, the psychopaths. Now, I never considered myself to be a psychopath. Society did. I'll guarantee I was locked up and considered a psychopath for a long time. Even in recovery, in the beginning, some people said, man, that guy's a psychopath. But I never believed it until I read the doctor's definition, which we're looking at here. He says we are emotionally unstable. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but if that's the definition of a psychopath, I guarantee you I fit the bill. <laughs> he says we're all familiar with this type. They're always going on the wagon for keeps. What does that mean? Is that my experience? Has that been my experience in sobriety even? Am I always going on the wagon for keeps? They're over-remorseful. Man, I can, oh, my God, the remorse that overplagued me with lust addiction. It just killed me uh, whenever I would come to, and even times whenever I would be doing, I would just be so remorseful. I would make many resolutions, but never a decision. That's type number one. Type number two, there is the type who is unwilling to admit he cannot take a drink, act out, eat, whatever it may be. Anybody relate to that? He plans various ways. I can remember hiding bottles you know i would never let anybody mow the grass in my backyard it was almost the size of the house in the summertime because there were just bottles hit all over the place same way with the back of the stool you lift the lid off and set it down in drugs in, in the pocket of almost every coat when i could find it when i hadn't used it all up plans various ways changes his brand of his, his environment i can remember i loved vodka Tavarsky's vodka when i was young oh my god i loved it couldn't afford it a whole lot of the time, but I loved it. And I drank and drank and drank and drank it. And I can remember one morning I began to bleed from the nose. And, and I loved vodka so much I drank it with coffee or I doused it on my toothbrush and brushed my teeth in the mornings. I just, oh, I love vodka. One day I thought, man, this is killing me. I need to change this. And so I switched to bourbon and drank bourbon all the way to the very end. I changed my brand. My environment, I was arrested in 1985. Very, very bad situation had happened. A man had died, and, and there was just a lot that went on there. So I got to change my environment for a while. <laughs> but it didn't help. It absolutely did not help. Because then my drug dealer lives right here as close as the computer is. It's insanity. Type number three, there is the type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol or whatever it is for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. 
And I believe that so many times. And it's, it's insane how a belief will become a reality, whether it is good or bad. And we're going to be looking through the entire book, looking at that moving forward. Beliefs, ideas, concepts, prejudice, attitudes. These are the things that make up the self. This is what directs me without my knowing it. I act the part and this becomes my reality. And that's what's happened here. There's a type of man who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he could take drink without danger. And if I believe that, I'm probably going to do that. Even though my experience continues to show me that's not a good idea. Number four, there is the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and by whom a whole chapter could be written. Number five, this is about the only one I don't really identify with at the time. Then there are types entirely normal in every respect, except the effect that alcohol has upon their often able, intelligent, and friendly people. There are so many people like that I meet in the fellowship today. But here's why I say that the allergy is what makes us all the same, not the obsession. And I've mentioned this a week or so ago. My sponsor, Charlie, would always tell me, God forbid, you know, several of us take a drink or we begin to act out or whatever it is. You know, some of us would go through many different mental phases. A few would want to fight. A few would want to love on the women. A few would be crying. You know, I mean, it would just be a big mess. But he said, David, that's not what makes us the same. What makes us the same is the allergy. And I never understood that until we read what we're fixing to pick up on right here. All of these and many others have one symptom in common, one being the key word. They cannot start, start being the key word. Drinking, acting out, eating, whatever it is, without developing that phenomenon of craving. See, that doesn't start before, that starts after. It's important that I get that in my head. When I work with a man, we do not leave this chapter until that's completely, completely understood. He cannot start drinking or whatever it may be without developing the phenomenon of craving. So this phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart at a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence, key word being entire. And that's where most of us, <laughs> now the, my mind tells me there must be another way. I mean, to quit cold turkey for good, I mean, oh my God. It says this immediately, not after a while, not in a little while, not in the next day or so, but immediately precipitates me into a seething cauldron of debate. It's almost like a boiling pot. So a seething cauldron of debate. It's just much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most Chronic alcoholics are doomed. Not all, but most. Well, the doctor says, what is the solution? I mean, he's giving me all this information. He's telling me, you know, I don't really have any choice in that. My mind's always going to lead me to it. My body's never going to let me get away from it. I'm trapped two ways. I'm powerless because once I put it in my body, I can't stop. And once I take it out of my mind, I can't stay stopped. What is the solution? <laughs> yeah, that's my question. What is the solution? And I love how he says, I can best answer it by relating one of my experiences. And I think that's what we do in the program, the fellowship. We share experiences. I mean, knowledge is a great thing to have, but I need experience here. About one year prior to this experience, a man had been brought in to be treated for chronic alcoholism. He had but 
partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be a case of pathological mental deterioration. This man is just deteriorating away in his mind. He lost everything worthwhile in life. Can anybody relate to that? And was living one might say to drink, act out, eat whatever it may be. He frankly admitted and believed for him there, there was no hope. That tells me he accepted step one right there. He did. He frankly admitted and believed for him there was no hope. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. So when I look at the first four words at the very top of the page, what is the solution? This next sentence is going to answer it. He accepted the plan outlined in the book. Fellowship's a wonderful thing, and i got to have it. But the plan of recovery is outlined in the book. And once we accept that, and I know this to be my experience and many other people that I know that are on this call tonight, once they accepted the plan outlined in the book, recovery began. We no longer fight that anymore. Thank God. What a beautiful, beautiful thing this is. Well, if you, if you didn't know, I didn't know for a long time. This is the man that wrote chapter 10 in this book, Hank P., that we're talking about here. He says, one year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name, partly recognized his feature, but there all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck, it emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. What a wonderful promise that is, because he accepted the plan outlined in the book. Now, I've known people pretty rough <laughs> that, that come into this fellowship pretty rough, and I know you have to. You take them through this step, and you see a new light come on, and you begin to see a change, and you begin to see them light up, and you begin to see the presence of God move and work and have his way within us. And all of a sudden, we're not the same man anymore. I don't have that thug life mentality anymore of a prison man. I don't talk inappropriately with women anymore. I don't do the things that I once do. The miracle is that I haven't done those things. The miracle is I haven't even wanted to do those things. It has not even crossed my mind. The miracle is not that I haven't drank alcohol for 28 years. The miracle is, is I have not obsessed or craved alcohol for 27 years. And with lust and acting out, the miracle is not only that I haven't lusted and acting out today. The miracle is I haven't even wanted to. Not the same man that walked in here three years ago. Why? I accept the plan outlined in the book. I talked with him for some time but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger, and so he left. Look at this promise. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. What a promise. Yes, sir. I love it. When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. The patient had made his own diagnosis. He knew what was wrong with him. I mean, this guy, he didn't need a doctor to do that. He already knew. Deciding his situation hopeless, had hidden in a deserted barn, determined to die. He was rescued by a searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. Following his physical rehabilitation, he had a talk with me, which he frankly stated that he thought the treatment a waste of effort. I remember after about five or six treatment centers thinking this very same thing. This is a waste of time. But you know what? They're going to lock me up again if I don't do it. And so I'm going to do it. And 
by the grace of God, the last time it, it took, it landed. Well, the doctor says, unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. And anybody that comes to me like that, they're not really serious about recovering and getting sober. We're just looking to get the power of the will back. And I used to say, you'll never get willpower back anymore, ever again, for as long as you live. You and Will are no longer friends. You never will be. Well, I proved myself to be a liar. Because if you will hold your place right there and you'll flip over to page 85 in this book, and if you'll drop down to the last, before the last full paragraph in the book, it says we can exercise our willpower along this line. All we wish is the proper use of the will. We do get the will back. But there is a process here in order for me to reconnect with the power in order to do that. It's not just something that's given to me here without any effort on my part. So the doctor says his alcoholic problem was so complex, his depression so great. My gosh, so many of us can relate to this. Huh? We felt then his only hope would be through what we called moral psychology. And we doubted if even that would have any effect. However, he did become sold, and I think that's the key words. He became sold on the ideas contained, for me, this is marked three or four times in my book, the ideas contained in this book. I mean, over and over and over, he's brought us back to that in this chapter. This book, this book, this book, what is the solution? He accepted the plan outlined in the book. He becomes sold on the ideas contained in the book. He keeps bringing us back to this. Here's the great promise for any of us that become sold on the ideas contained in the book. He's not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then. He's the finest specimen of manhood as one could wish to meet. I earnestly advise every alcoholic, and my sponsor had me to put my name above that, to read this book. See, he keeps coming back to the book over and over. Through, not just a part of it, not just a little bit of it, I advise, I advise every alcoholic, sexaholic, lustaholic, food addict, whatever it may be, to continue to come back and, and work through this book, keep moving through this book. It says, and though perhaps he came to scope, he may remain to pray. And for a doctor to even put that word in his writing, in a book like this, at that time, that was almost unheard of. And he signs it, William D. Silkworth, M.D., now, if you look at the first edition of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, this chapter's there, but his name is not. He did not want his name in the book because if something goes south with this thing, they're going to they're burn him to the stake in, in his field. However, God had other plans, and this thing took off, and it became a national institution in the day. Millions millions has recovered. He'd come back, absolutely. He wanted his name in the book at that point, and so that's why it's there. I think that's a, we're a little early, but I think that's probably a good place for us to stop. I really like to hear from some other people that have uh, been through this process and, uh, you know, to, to share some things on this or any questions, you know, that we may be able to answer through our experience. We're happy to do that. I'm really glad for the new folks that came out tonight. I, I really, I really, really enjoy seeing here, Doug and, and his lovely wife and, and so many others that, 
Thank you so much. Good to see you, Michael from Florida. Uh, good man. There again, feel free to agree or disagree with anything you've heard here tonight. I'm not the guru by any means of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And anything your sponsor tells you that may be different than what you've heard here from me tonight, your sponsor is right, not me. So with that being said, I'm going to pass it along. And uh, thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Dennis, for your service. And I'm glad to be here. This concludes David's share on tonight's chapter, but we encourage you to keep listening as he answers questions from the audience and shares additional experience, strength, and hope. What is the definition of that first drink that creates the phenomenon of craving um, in like sex addiction? You know, in like in drugs and alcohol is pretty simple, like having any of that stuff, substance enter your body. What is the definition um, in sex addiction? Thank you, brother. It's good to see you on camera. First time ever. <laughs> We've been working together a little while. First time I've ever seen you. Um, it's been my experience, and, and there's going to be some that will completely disagree with that, and that's okay. I know that once I entertain those thoughts in such a way, that it makes me act on them, whatever it may be, whether I click on the computer or whatever I may do, that seems to trigger for me the craving of more and more and more of that. There's times whenever the obsession is so strong on me and I know that I'm, I'm drinking lust. I, I know it. But... I also know that if, by God's grace, I can get away from that through the 10th step and through calling members or going to a meeting or whatever I, whatever we do to medicate that here, that that seems to pass. But any action I take outside of that, any action, seems to set up a craving that demands more of the same. And that's been my experience with it. Now, there's some other guys on here that have a lot of years with this as well. But um for me, that's, that's how the lust strength really begins to manifest itself once I take the actions. So I appreciate your question. That's a good question. And it's good to see you, brother. I'll be talking with you tomorrow. We have a great question that's in the chat, and then I'll come back to the raised hands, is what is the difference between obsession and craving? Well, in my experience, it seems to be that uh, – the obsession is a thought that crowds out all other thoughts. That's something I absolutely cannot get away from in my mind. Once I put that inside of my body, really my mind at that point, it doesn't have much to say about it anymore. I don't need a thought that crowds out all other thoughts. By now, I've acted on that thought. And now that craving is becoming a reality in my life. So... For me, the obsession is the thought that crowds out all other thoughts. The allergy is something that sets up the craving for more of the same. For me, that's the difference. The phenomenon of craving versus the insanity of the thought that continues to drive me to that. One drives me to the other and to the other. I think that's why he said, and we read there tonight, this is repeated over and over and over and over. So I know in my experience, that's how it's been anyhow. So thanks for the question. 
what are your thoughts on the obsession of the mind with codependency and then the phenomenon of craving? Because with food, you know, we're, we have to eat, like, I don't have to put alcohol in my body. And so I'm like, you know, that's, um, or exercise too. Um, when like exercise is good, but when I'm, when I'm, if I'm struggling with something and I'm using exercise over exercise to not feel, then I'm getting like that natural morphine and I'm acting out. Um, but how would you talk about codependency with that, without that? That's a great question, Sue, and it's good to see you as always. Wow. I think for me, I always come back to the book <laughs> and there's some direction over around page 117 that talks about some of the snags that I will encounter. And I think for myself, really, and I think Dennis articulated it so well, these are the things that set up inside of me prior to any of this kind of stuff going on. So really, these are the things that I want to really try to play, pay close attention to. And bottom of the page there, and I know this is talking about the husband, the wife, this, but I want to look at what the defects underlying all that stuff is. And some of the snags you will encounter are irritation. And I'm sure you would probably agree that that's going on prior, right? And hurt feelings about something, someone, something. Your husband sometimes being unreasonable. You'll want to criticize. You know, I can take that sentence out and just look at the criticizing. I like how he words this, starting from a speck on the domestic horizon to great thunder clouds of dispute may gather. These dissensions are dangerous. And these are the things that seem to go on inside of my mind prior to acting on any of that stuff. So it goes on to talk about resentment being a deadly hazard, not only for the alcoholic, but for any of us. And uh, whenever there's an honest difference of opinion, just be careful not to disagree in a resentful or critical spirit. But how do I do that within my own self? Because these are the things that seem to be plaguing me as I go throughout my day, whenever I'm in that state of mind. And I think we read it here tonight and, and on uh, Roman numeral 29. I'm not real good with Roman numerals, but I'm pretty sure there's 29 there. When he said, you know, on the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those that don't understand, once the psychic change has occurred, the very same person who had all of this stuff going on that was just driving them suddenly finds himself easily able to control their desire for whatever it may be. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, that's probably as close as I can get to it after a prayer. So anyway, thank you. <laughs> 